Hi, writers. I'm glad you're here for our new episode in our podcast series about writing fiction. Let me ask, what put you in mind to write? What gave you this wonderful idea that you should write, that you had some stories to tell? Was it when you were young and someone, maybe your mom, read a little story you wrote and said it was very fine, such as happened to Stephen King? Or did you read a fabulous novel and think, I might be able to write something like this? Or did a teacher compliment an essay you wrote? Or did you get into the habit of writing by keeping a diary when you were younger? My earliest memory of such an event was when I was a junior in high school and I submitted a 400-word short story to my high school's literary magazine. It was chosen for the magazine, the only short story so chosen, and I recall being proud of it. Maybe it was this that turned on the switch and made me want to write. How about you? What ignited your ambition to write? How about sending me an email and letting me know? My email address is jimthayerseattle at gmail.com. That's my name, Jim Thayer, J-I-M-T-H-A-Y-E-R, followed by the city's name, Seattle, at gmail.com. I don't collect email addresses for any commercial purpose, and I'll never share your email address with anyone. I read a lot of biographies of accomplished people. And I read a lot of coming-of-age novels. Both these non-fiction and fiction books describe a person finding his or her path. I'm fascinated by how this happens. How did you find your writing path? If you are so inclined, please let me know. Seattle at gmail.com My new novel, Fagan and Miss Havisham, has been released and is available at Amazon. The novel takes place in London in the 1820s, and its characters are Charles Dickens's famous characters from many of his novels. Fagin and Bill Sykes from Oliver Twist, Miss Havisham from Great Expectations, Murdstone from David Copperfield, and many others. They are younger than in Dickens's novels, and I toss them together to see what happens. The publisher is Creative Texts, an independent publisher and a good one, and I'm delighted. I had huge fun researching and writing the novel. I tried to take readers back to London 200 years ago, and I hope you'll consider getting a print or ebook copy. You'll be able to see whether I can actually do the writing techniques we talk about in these episodes. The title again is Fagin and Miss Havisham. Thank you. Let's talk about a a big topic today. That's the pattern of a novel or a short story. What is the goal of a novel or short story? It's to entertain. Sure, you might be delivering a message or giving an outlook on life, or you might have some other goal, but the main goal of our novel should be to entertain, because that's the only thing that will keep readers reading. A boat is a boat. There are certain things about a boat that make it a boat and allow it to float. 
A story is a story. There are certain things about a story that make it work that allow a reader to be successfully entertained. Those certain things, those techniques, are what we've been focusing on, and we'll dig a little deeper now. Let's talk about the pattern of a successful novel. We'll talk about the structure of a novel and its scenes. Here's a a 60-second summary of our earlier discussion about scenes, and after it, we'll, we'll dig deeper. Scenes in fiction come in a wide variety, of course. The author can use fascinating settings and can introduce well-drawn characters and add snappy dialogue and sharp observations. A writer can mix it all up in her scene, but still, a scene that works usually has a logical progression. And it's this. It's the pattern of a scene. It is a statement of goal, introduction and development of conflict, and a failure in most scenes of the character to reach his goal. It's a tactical disaster. At the end of most successful scenes, the hero is farther away from his goal, not closer. Jack Bickham, in his terrific book, Scene and Structure, uh, let me say again, it's probably the best uh, book on writing I've ever found. Uh, Jack Bickham says, quote, readers generally find nothing as enthralling as conflict. Most popular novels, for example, are basically the record of a prolonged struggle. So let's, let's look a little closer. What is structure? It's, structure is a way of looking at your story, so that's, it's organized in a logical and dramatic way. We need structure in a novel for understanding whether the novel holds together. Can a reader understand what's happening? Is, is the story told in an interesting way that will keep the reader reading? What do readers want in a story? Jack Bickham, in Scene and Structure, says a reader wants five things. First, they are fascinated and threatened by significant change. What does he mean by that? Significant change threatens the main character's self-concept. And that is the heart of what a character thinks about herself. It's this threatening change is often some change in the environment, something external to her. Sometimes this change is the main story question, and sometimes it isn't. But it is a significant change, something that threatens the main character's self-concept. That's Jack Bickham. Uh, here's an example uh, from Dickens's Great Expectations. Pip's life is profoundly changed when, while visiting his mother's grave, he meets an escaped conflict. In John D. MacDonald's The Dreadful Lemon Sky, one of his wonderful Travis McGee novels, the story begins when a desperate and unexpected visitor trips McGee's burglar alarm. Uh, In John Steinbeck's The Winter of Our Discontent, the novel opens with an inheritance and a banker's challenge to make a risky investment. 
In the first few sentences of Forfeit by Dick Francis, a man dies and a letter arrives. In Prelude to Terror by Helen McGinnis, a man leaves his home and is followed by a sinister character. These are threats to the main character's self-concept. Isn't that the pattern to all good novels? Something happens to threaten the narrator. Uh, the, narrator. Uh, the second thing uh, Jack Bickham says is a pattern of a novel, readers want to, st to start the story with such a change. Not too long ago, a writer planning to write a novel could start virtually with her main character's birth or early in childhood and tell almost the entire story of the person's birth. An example is uh, Charles Dickens's David Copperfield, which begins with the immortal line, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether this, that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. To begin my life with the beginning of my life, I record that I was born, as I have been informed and believe, on a Friday at 12 o'clock at night. This is a wonderful beginning to one of my favorite novels, David Copperfield. But fashions in writing have changed, and uh, very few successful novels begin today with the beginning of the character's life. Some novels started even earlier. Uh, the 1759 novel Tristram Shandy, written by Lawrence Stern, begins not with Tristram's birth, but, by, but before that at his conception. This doesn't work most often today. Readers want a narrower slice of life. Jack Bickham says that for maximum effectiveness, you should start your novel at the time of the change that threatens your major character's self-concept. In other words, he says, significant change that threatens is where your story should start. Uh, fans, and who isn't, of Spongebob Squarepants know that within five or eight seconds of the start of each episode, something happens that throws Spongebob's world out of whack. When the episode begins, Spongebob is fine. And then a few seconds later, whack. It's out of whack. The same technique applies to novels. A writer's most important goal is to keep the reader reading and having something, usually something bad, happen to the protagonist in the first few pages is a proven technique. More than that, it's a formula, followed by the masters for decades and the bestsellers today. Well, let me mention again, formula here is not a negative. Certain things work in fiction. Formulas are techniques shown to have worked successfully time and time again. Formulas like chocolate milkshakes are good. Failure to put the story in motion early in the novel, in the first few pages, uh, usually by a, a challenge to the main character, is a critical mistake one that can't be overcome later because an agent or publisher won't read beyond the first few pages 
when the agent or publisher sees the writer is setting things up in those pages rather than immediately putting the plot into motion. Let's see how the masters do it. In Ryder Haggard's The People of the Mist, on the first page we meet Leonard, who is peering through the stately gates to his Elizabethan mansion that until, the, uh, until that day had been his home. His father's creditors have just taken possession. Within the next five pages, the reader learns Leonard loses his inheritance, his place at the university, and his fiancée. Through no fault of his own, he has been dealt cruel blows within the first thousand words. He spends the rest of the novel trying to, to return his world to normal. In Robert Sawyer's WWW Wake, we learn that Caitlin had just spent her first day in high school, a regular school, filled with teen anxieties about how she fared. Did the other girls wear earrings? Were they looking at her? Who will be your friends? We learn within three pages that Caitlin is blind, and her first day at high school was her first day at a school that wasn't for the blind. This new school, where teachers put words and figures on a blackboard that she can't see, is a new and disjointed world for Caitlin. In Janet Ivanovich's Finger Lickin' 15, the first chapter opens with a several-sentence description of the protagonist's job as a bail bond enforcement officer, and then one of her workmates, Lula, rushes in to say on her drive to work that she saw two fellows, quote, removing a head from some guy's body. This one moron had a giant meat cleaver, and the other moron had a hold of this man in a suit, and whack, no head. The head popped off its neck and bounced down the street. End quote. That's Janet Ivanovich. This dialogue, the presentation of the world newly out of whack, occurs about 740 words into the, no into the novel, just two pages. The first sentences of Jack McDevitt's Seeker are, Westcott knew he was dead. There seemed little chance for Margaret either, or his daughter. Uh, Westcott's right arm is crushed and is pinned by fallen timber. Screams come from the darkness. Westcott's world hasn't just been thrown out of whack. It's been destroyed on the novel's first page. In uh, Louis L'Amour's Big Medicine, Prospector Billy Dunbar has just found gold-bearing gravel in a creek. He's rich. His wildest prospecting dreams have come true, except for one thing. Nine, quote, mean, ornery, end quote, Apaches are headed his way looking for his scalp, and Billy is flat down in a dry wash, swearing into his beard. His world is a, a, abruptly out of whack on page one. Alexander Dumas doesn't wait until the end of The Three Musketeers' first sentence to drop a wrench into the machine. He tells us that the market town of Myung, quote, appeared to be in as perfect a state of revolution, end quote, with, quote, uncertain courage, 
end quote, the citizens don their breastplates and grab their muskets. Myung is in disarray in the novel's first page. Nor does Bernard Cornwell wait to throw things out of whack in his novel Agincourt. The first sentence is, On a winter day in 1413, just before Christmas, Nicholas Hook decided to commit murder. Hook is 19, skilled with a bow and arrow, and he intends to kill Tom Perrin, a, a bully from a family the Hooks have feuded with for two generations. Hook fires the arrow, and it speeds straight toward the victim's heart. Quote, then the arrow fluttered, end quote. Uh, a fledgling has come loose. The arrow sinks into the horse's shoulder, uh, and now Nicholas must face the feared Lord Slayton. And, uh, uh, and he must face certain punishment for the attempted murder. Nicholas li Nicholas's life has been upended, and all of this has happened in a fraction of the first chapter. All of these proven authors uh, of classics and of modern stories use the throw-the-world-out-of-whack-right-away technique. New writers often want to set up things first before they get to the uh, out-of-whack. They want to tell the reader about the hero, the setting, uh, the family, the weather. They want to extensively show the protagonist's world first, before it's out of whack. This is usually a mistake. We writers should put the story in motion first. So we should throw the hero's world out of whack right away, within a couple of sentences or paragraphs of the start. The other stuff, the setup and explanations, can wait until after we've hooked the reader. Let's take a closer look at how this is done by an expert. This is the first 10 or maybe 15 lines of Jack Higgins's novel, The Savage Day. Here are the first lines of the novel, and Jack Higgins is an expert at this. Here they are. They were getting ready to shoot somebody in the inner courtyard, which meant it was Monday because Monday was execution day. Although my own cell was on the other side of the building, I recognized the signs. A disturbance from those cells from which some prisoners could actually witness the whole proceeding and then the drums rolling. The commandant liked that. There was silence, a shouted command, a volley of rifle fire. After a while, the drums started again, a steady beat accompanying the cortege as the dead man was wheeled away. For the commandant, like to preserve the niceties, even on Scarthos, one of the most unlovely places I have visited in my life. A bare rock in the Aegean with an old Turkish fort on top of it, containing 3,000 political detainees, 400 troops to guard them, and me. I'd had a month of it, which was exactly four weeks too long, and the situation wasn't improved by the knowledge that some of the others had spent up to two years without any kind of trial. A prisoner told me during exercise one day that the name of the place was derived from some classical Greek root meaning barren, which didn't surprise me in the slightest. Through the bars of my cell, you could see the mainland, a smudge on the horizon in the heat haze. 
Occasionally there was a ship, but too far away to be interesting, for the Greek navy ensured that most craft gave the place a wide berth. If I craned my head to the left when I peered out there was rock, thorn bushes to the right. Otherwise, there was nothing to see and nothing to do except lie on the straw mattress on the floor, which was exactly what I was doing on that May morning when everything changed. Let's take a look at what Jack Higgins is doing. This is the story of an ex-British elite soldier, Simon Vaughn, who was given a choice of 15 years in a terrible prison or a dirty job on behalf of Her, Ma Her Majesty's government. The job consisted of infiltrating the IRA, posing as an arms dealer, and locating a shipment of gold stolen by the IRA to be used as the war chest. Notice these things about these 300 words that I just read. In lines 1 and 2, there's a startlingly swift start. The reader need not be patient. The first seven words show action already in progress. It's uh, dynamic and dangerous action. The third line, the, the phrase, quote, my own cell, tells the reader that the point of view is first person. Uh, the point of view is established early. The third paragraph are concrete details and action verbs. By the end of the paragraph, the reader knows where the setting is, what it is called, how it is set up, and how the narrator fits in. And then in the first sentence of the fourth paragraph, readers learn how long the narrator has been there and the fact that some prisoners wait years for a trial. It's unfair. This is a threatening place. And then the last sentence of the portion I read, when everything changed. This tells the reader to grab her hat. It's bad now, but just wait. The third thing Jack Bickham says readers want is a story question to worry about. A reader who's been confronted with this change early in the novel will be interested and delighted with the predicament and may worry for the protagonist. But a reader can't be expected to be caught up in a change for too long, Jack Bickham says. Readers are impatient. The reader needs something bigger to worry about. This is why the writer presents the story goal early. Good fiction is goal-motivated. When a writer makes clear the story goal, often by the hero saying it or thinking it, I want my freedom. That's Jack Bickham's story goal. The, your reader will grab that goal. And that goal is turned into a story question. I want revenge is the goal statement. Will she get revenge? That's the story question. I want her to love me is the goal statement. Will she ever love him is the story question. I want to be free is the goal statement. Will he ever be free is the story question. The fourth thing Jack Bickham says readers want, they want the story question answered in the story ending. How do you end the novel? By answering the story question. That's the climax of the novel. And he says we shouldn't cheat the reader. We need to answer the story question. For example, uh, for a story question, will she ever love him? Uh, your answer should be yes or no in the novel. But 
in my opinion, ending should be happy, so it should be yes. The ending shouldn't be that she wins the lottery and is no longer interested in love because she now can buy a nice car. <laughs> if the story question is, will the protagonist get revenge against the villain, your answer should be yes or no. Not that the villain contracts malaria and dies in a hospital far away. Here are a couple more examples of endings that would cheat the reader. The story question is, will Rebecca find fame and fortune in Hollywood? This ending would cheat the reader. Stagehands go on strike and the movie industry is shut down. Here's another one. Will a cure for Daniel's disease be discovered in the four weeks Daniel has left? A, an ending that would uh, cheat the reader is Daniel's disease disappears on its own. Uh, here's another one. Will 14-year-old Sarah ever tame the horse enough to ride it? Well, that's a great story question. The answer probably should be yes. But if your answer is, Dad sells the horse, you've cheated the reader. And then Jack Bickham's final element of a pattern of a novel is the fifth one. Readers will quickly lose patience with everything but material that relates to the story question. Uh, these things uh, are over-description, flashbacks, backstory, subplots that don't contribute to the story question. Uh, this list from Jack Bickham is, is an important lesson for us. We'll re in our next episode, we'll return and talk about things that do and do not contribute to the story question. Let me uh, change the subject and talk about titles again. I like the subject. The Bookseller Diagram Prize for Oddest title of the year, it's also known as the Diagram, uh, the Diagram Prize, is a funny literary award given each year to the book with the oddest title. Uh, the award was created by Horace Bent and first presented at the Frankfurt Book uh, Fair in 1978 by the British magazine Bookseller. Uh, nominees are selected from submissions sent in by libraries, publishers, and booksellers. And the final winner is voted on by the public. Uh, the prize is a magnum of champagne and increased publicity for the book and its author. Here are a couple of a diagram prize for the oddest title of the year winners. The Joy of Water Boiling. Too Naked for the Nazis. Goblin Proofing One's Chicken Coop. Managing a Dental Practice, the Genghis Khan Way. Crocheting Adventures with Hyperbolic Planes. Well, I, I trust and hope we can come up with uh, titles that are better than those. We've come to the end of this podcast. I'm sure glad you are with me for it. We'll continue uh, with the pattern of the novel next time. It's such an important topic. Until then, this is Jim Thayer. Please keep tapping those keys. <laughs>